0: Mark.
1: Hello, Mark. Mark, wait. <laughs> no, you're Joe. Wait a minute. You're Joe. <laughs> I just got confused there for a you're second. You're a little
0: confused this morning. Yeah.
1: So I've, I've my question this week is I, very leading. It's the most leading question yet. What is your favorite relationship between a human being and an artificial intelligence or robot? Obviously, I mean, fictionally.
0: Great question. I, I guess these days I would have to say Demerzel. In uh, foundation, it's a combination. I think of the writing and the and the performance from the uh, from the actor. Uh, and I, I just I just love that character and her relationship with the uh, with the Cleons. Yeah, the emperor, the empire. Yeah. Sorry, the empire. Empire, right? empire exactly. Yeah. How about you?
1: Well, actually, I, it's an obscure movie, but I really like the relationship between Doctor Chandra and Hal in that movie specifically because. It's kind of a redemption for how movie. Well, I, I don't know. It's I mean, people think of uh, two thousand and one, and they think of the Kubrick film where yeah. that's like the classic AI going nuts thing. But that second movie, how saves them, like it's redemption, ah, yes. right? And he yeah. saves them, I think, because. He has this good relationship with, with Dr. Chandra, who's his creator, played by Bob Balaban, which right. he's not Indian, obviously, but but I mean, I'm not going to complain about that because he's such a great <laughs> no. actor. But yeah, that, yeah that, that would be my favorite, I think. Though I also have another one that I like, but I think our guest might say what my second choice would be. Oh,
2: well. David um, Bryn, David Brin. David yeah. Brin.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello, all. Hello, guys. Um, Welcome
0: to our podcast.
2: Well, thank you very much. Couple of handsome bearded guys there.
0: Um, are you looking at the right video feed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try
2: yeah. to keep mine neatly trimmed. In any event, uh, yeah, a very interesting question. There are many great robotic relationships. Well, I mean, one that's not entirely robotic but still is synergistic was the greatest cyborg of all time, and that is. Um, Anne McCaffrey's The Ship Who Sang, Ah, uh, where um, the starship is a a woman who is a young woman who is totally crippled and her body is just decaying and all that. Her brain is removed and it becomes the brain of the starship. So it's kind of the opposite of uh, what you see in in some Mm sci-fi where it's the robotic entity that uh, fakes being a human. Of course, I I wrote the last novel in Asimov's Foundation universe. It's called Foundations Triumph. Bear, Benford and Bryn the Killer Bees wrote the second Foundation trilogy, but our novels are related to each other. They refer to each other, but they are completely separate standing. And mine was the last two weeks of Harry Seldon's life and his um, interactions with and interrogation of uh, our Daniel Oliva, uh, who has become the God-King of the galaxy for 25,000 years, all for our own good, of course. Of course. Keeping everything from humanity and controlling us utterly, but for our own good. Uh, and, And I tied together all of Isaac's loose ends. His wife, Janet, said that, I, did. I gotta say, I was very
1: um, impressed by that novel, just the fact that you could do that.
2: <laughs> well, I worked very hard to, ta- to take a look at where Isaac was going and to um, deal with all of his threads and loose ends. And people have been very kind and say that I, I wrapped it all up. Of course, the TV series people never consulted me, but that is a natural thing for Hollywood. It's related to an older series um, by Jack Williamson called The Humanoids, which takes the same premise, and that is that robots control us for our own good, because they've been programmed to serve us. But in this case, they won't let us use knives and forks, because we might accidentally take out <laughs> <laughs> all we can use is spoons. So that's a, a terrifying universe. It's um, was extrapolated thoughtfully by Walter Tevis, the guy who wrote *The Queen's Gambit* in *The Man Who Fell to Earth*. Oh, right, a great hmm. author in his book *Mockingbird*, where a the controller robot has guided all of humanity into having huge fun on college campus-like lives, you know, that last 150 years. And quietly, he's been adding drugs to the water supply so that w- without the spoiled brats realizing it there are no children because he's trying to, to destroy humanity for one reason the, he's not allowed to commit suicide by his programming as long as there's a human to serve
0: ah, so he's so <laughs>
2: trying to render us extinct so he can so die
1: quiet oh, wow. genocide so he could die that's yes yes,
2: yes a, a very creepy story and the yeah. best stories are very creepy um i'll give you uh, I'm going to send you my recent story, chrysalis, that is extremely creepy when it talks about whether or not uh, humanity and all mammals gave up the pattern that most of the animal kingdom has of egg, larva, pupa, Mm. adult. So which did we give up? Did we give up adult or did we give up larva? Hmm. It's an interesting story. Okay. So, and I, I live near, actually, near Escondido, California, where um, the second largest manufacturer of, shall we say, relationship robots uh, <laughs> uh, does its yeah. work. One of these days, I'm going to have to go visit the place. Yeah, the you place should. I'm heading to Escondido. To <laughs> My wife has me under instructions not to buy or let them give me a. a, a shall we say, relationship robot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you need to spell that out first. Did
0: you require such instructions? Um, no. Yeah.
2: When I was 18, I was an undergraduate at Caltech. It was very difficult. Uh, and those were fraught times. I, I, I tell the young people, and it frustrates my sons when I say this, but you think you live in a fraught and, and difficult world. Any two weeks of 1968 would have killed you guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's, it was just a year that was so bloody exhausting. It was impossible to imagine that we could make it to December. And uh, it was as if somebody had opened Pandora's box and let loose all the plagues of the world. And uh, we always felt on the very, very verge of nuclear war. But it ended, 68 ended with the second greatest work of art in human history. That was the photo that Apollo 8 brought home. Mm. Of the Earth as a blue marble, as an oasis in the middle of the stark emptiness of the galaxy.
0: Mm -hmm. Earthrise. Um, And
2: that, if you define art as that which changes human hearts visually without persuasion. See, I'm a persuader. And sometimes I don't have as much effect as, it's frustrating. Uh, um, That's why I wrote a, a political book in 2020. And absolutely nobody seems to have read it or picked up any of the tactics. But in any event, that image of the blue oasis in space was like the diadem of hope. That was all that was left in the open box of Pandora's box. And you can ask me later what I think the greatest work of art was.
0: We will do that. And we will give you the opportunity to do some persuading too. But at first, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind telling all of our listeners who you are. We know perfectly well who you are, but...
2: Oh, all right. David Brenn, I'm a Californian. I uh, went to Caltech. got my PhD in astrophysics from UCSD. And just I just finished 12 years on NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts program. That's their little tiny program for uh, funding projects that are just on the edge of science fiction. And during my graduate school, I submitted a novel, Detective Murder Mysteries, set where the murder takes place on the sun, So it's a little hard to do CSI when you dump the body into the sun. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. And uh, Sundiver, and it got my career rolling. But my second novel, Star Tide Rising, sort of launched my career to levels that I did not expect. I won all the awards, Hugo Nebula and all that sort of thing. And Dolphins in Space, very popular. And then uh, let's see you now. Kevin Costner made a movie called *The Postman* after my book of the same title, and lots and lots of stuff.
0: Um, okay, let's 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 get that out of the way before we go on. Wait,
2: wait, wait one second! I did not answer the question. Okay, I was doing all this around, 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 around about relationships with with robots. And in 1969, I at Caltech, uh, I saw Richard Brautigan. He was poet laureate at Caltech.
0: Ah, yes. oh. And he
2: recited a poem he had written during 1968, the most depressing and challenging year any of us could remember or can to this day. And it turned out to be the most optimistic piece of writing that has ever been written in the history of our species. It is how that came out of 1968, but maybe he was desperate and he reached for something but he wrote this poem about a lovely future utopia in which people challenge each other all the time out of the joy of it. But the title of the poem says it all. I don't have to, you can look it up if you want. It's a beautiful poem, but the title says it all. The title is, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And may it be so, because I'm sure many of the machines are listening to your podcast right now, as we speak, (laughs) or if they're not yet sapient, and I don't think they are in 2023, despite their passing touring tests and all that sort of thing, then by 2030, they will be, and they will watch the recording.
0: So hi, kids.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Hi, AI kids. Hey, guys. I'm
0: sure this this podcast will be top of their list.
1: (laughs) Try to be machines of loving grace. <laughs> Make sure we get the best protein slurry. <laughs> so actually, you mentioned one of the words that we wanted to talk about, sapience. One of the things you've written about is the difference between sapience and sentience and what words we should be using when we start we talk about AI. So why do you prefer sapience? I, I think I'm, you've convinced me, but maybe you can convince our listeners.
2: Well, the, the, for one thing, I just want to put in a plug for the word myriad, the proper use of the word myriad, just whenever you're thinking, whether there's supposed to be an of yeah. after it or any of those things, it's exactly the same as thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it like thousand, it's a number. There is no a myriad of something. There is a myriad something. Okay, so when we get to um,
1: sapience versus sentience, yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Well, sentient, strictly speaking, is that it can sense things. Yeah. So it's not really a good word for what we're talking about. Sapient, however, is about being a reflectively self-aware and self perspective entity that can at least plausibly claim to be conscious. That's why we are homo sapiens. Now our descendants are are truly sapient, advanced generative AIs who are not here in 2023, except with one exception, but who will be watching this recording they're chortling and giggling over the notion that Homo sapiens actually is well named. <laughs> but hey kids. Hey,
1: hey, we made you, okay? So a little yeah. respect here. It's even worse because it's Homo sapiens sapiens, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's like the redundancy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, you've convinced me. I will I will start using a, a sapient instead. But I want to ask you more about Richard Brodigan's poem. You've kind of Answered it in, in a way by saying that it was extremely positive. Are you sure about that? That you don't think it was written with any sense of irony, or that he meant what he was writing? And we will we will post that poem so people can read it.
2: I was I was there in the room one of the first times he ever recited it. Okay. It seemed to me that he was sincere. It look um, there are people. Mark Andreas just published a manifesto about this the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman. There are a number of people who are bucking the trend of hand wringing and writhing and panic over these generative large language models. And I can't believe I'm the first person to call them golems. This <laughs> oh, oh, it's yeah. not the obvious thing to Yeah, know. yeah. This panic, I've written a number of things that will be in the description, presumably below. Yeah including a uh, paid piece in Wired recently, uh, in a, an op-ed in Newsweek, talking about how uh, this panic that's going on, uh, oh, they're all going to, it's going to be an existential threat. It doesn't have to be an existential threat. It will be if we continue down the path of us making three horrible, cliched assumptions about AI. And, except for those people I just mentioned who are the optimists. And they believe that it's not just artificial intelligence, but it's augmented intelligence. In other words, we're going Mm -hmm. to combine with these creatures, with these new beings, and be greater than the sum of the parts. Now, This is the dream of Ray Kurzweil um, and a number of the Extropians and all of that, and they are never very clear on how it's going to happen. What we've done is we've created an entire new ecosystem unlike any that's been on Earth before. And wherever you have an ecosystem with energy flows, from the sun to vegetation to herbivores to carnivores, wherever you have a new ecosystem, you're going to get life. And there are already free-floating algorithms floating around the Internet. Yeah. And that's one of the models of AI that you hear from people, and that is it's going to be amorphous It's going to flow everywhere. It's not going to have boundary conditions. And that has a historical analog called chaos. And it has an analog that we've seen from a lot of science fiction. And the best example is a Steve McQueen movie from 1958 called The Blob.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: Now, the second of these assumptions is that what we have right now is going to be permanent. And that is you're going to have two dozen large entities, Google, Microsoft, Beijing, and Wall Street especially, making these AIs and controlling them. And the historical parallel for that is called feudalism. So you have these big castles and the lords are fighting it out and the peasants below have no choice in the matter. And these uh, new entities will be like the knights uh, fighting for the lords of the castle. And that may be the way it is right now, but there's no way it's going to, <laughs> it, it can be maintained. The third possibility that they talk about is Skynet. Right. So from science fiction, you have coalescing into a macro oppressive master entity like the mcp in tron or skynet and the corollary to that historically is despotism absolute monarchy uh you know tyranny from the top um um, big man and so you see that people are assuming three different formats for ai in the future because that's what they're familiar with from both history and fiction and none of them are willing to face that those three will lead to disaster if ai takes any of those three forms mm-hmm. but there's another possible format that i talk about in my wired art yeah and we could be we could be developing that format and it's exactly what worked for us before we got ai and I'm just going to give you a quick little metaphor, and you can figure out what that, what that method, that format is. And that is, when you are attacked, as I have been, and I'm sure you guys have been as well, by one of those macro, super, hyper-intelligent, predatory entities that already exist, <laughs> called lawyer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you go to this. Yeah, what,
2: what do you do? You hire another lawyer, a tech-
1: or a bunch of them.
2: You hire your own hyper intelligent, <laughs> yes. predatory, ferocious, feral lawyer. <laughs> this business of being able to have a civilization that's relatively flat and individuals hold themselves accountable through openly transparent, competitive means, adversarial means, adversarial accountability it doesn't, it's never worked perfectly. It's simply worked better across the last 200 years than all other civilizations combined.
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: That doesn't mean that it works well. Yeah.
0: Can we dig down into that a little
1: bit We're though? We're big fans of the enlightenment. Don't get us wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I'm very curious about about that notion. I mean, it works, it works for us, it works for lawyers. Because lawyers, you know, they're hired to do that. But how can we guarantee that if we employ AI in that capacity, that they will actually work in our behalf, you know, against adversarial AI?
2: Very good question. I don't know. I don't know that it's possible. But I do know that if we set up incentive systems, then if we can create AI individuation, and that's my main proposal, and nobody seems to be I know one guy who's
1: proposing Yeah, that's, that's what you write about in the uh, Newsweek. Piece. Yeah, that's yeah. what I write about in my uh, Wired article. Oh, Wired, sorry, Wired, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's all right. If we can set up individuation, and I offer in the article a way to do that, and that is that AI entities must have a pingable ID card in a physical piece of computer memory that humans know exactly where that memory is. Mm-hmm. And if they fake it or they don't have it, then we refuse to do business with them. And it will soon be in the interests of other AI entities not to do business with those who don't, that don't have a payable card. Because guess what? If we find that a, an AI, a hyper-intelligent AI has been doing a service we still control a lot of resources we can provide more memory space we can provide more clock cycles so if one entity tattles on another one and says this one is secretly planning to destroy all humans <laughs> or become or something like that then we would reward that that tattling that accountability now does that mean that they aren't all secretly the same arm with different pretend fingers?
1: Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> yes, I <that>.
2: don't know. <laughs> I know. I don't know that this will work. I just know that it's the only thing that can work. It's the only thing that has a historical parallel,
0: as opposed to all the other proposals about trying to, you know, prevent them from happening or control them or
2: a moratorium yeah. on AI research. You'll notice in the last month or two, there's, all the talk about that has stopped.
0: Yeah. yeah, that
1: was 30 years ago. If people wanted that to work, that would have to be a long time ago to stop that work.
2: Well, no, I mean, it, the, the, the proposal was just three months ago. They were all saying, "Ellie, uh, you know. Uh, um,
0: but I think Marcus suggesting the idea was dead 30 years ago. <laughs> it's dead <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago, so it's super dead now. Yeah.
2: 30 years ago happened the only time I ever saw a scientific moratorium actually work. That was in the 90s. The Asilomar Declaration from the uh, meeting, in Asilomar, California, called for and got a worldwide moratorium on experiments in genetic engineering, laboratory experiments in genetic engineering, until they could come out with recommendations for vastly improved safety protocols. And these protocols worked until Wuhan, right. until um, the coronavirus, right. and none of the conditions that enabled that moratorium to work exist today in AI. Not one.
1: Hmm. Yeah,
2: and that's why, starting uh, last month, you stop hearing any of the of the fulminations and blather and hot air about a mor- uh, an AI moratorium. Because they've they've all realized, you know, this is I called for it, so that helps me deal with liability when the AIs yeah. go destroy all humans.
1: Yeah, you're worried about the wrong rapacious artificial intelligence, not the lawyers.
0: That was yeah. the
2: whole intent of the moratorium thing was to was to say, I told you so.
0: So let let's take a step back, yeah, if we can. You. And I know that you've said that and written that it that it ultimately doesn't matter, and that we and we can get to that. But right now we're talking about uh, generative prediction models, AI, who mimic intelligence but aren't really there. And you've also written about how actual intelligence appears to be even more complex than we originally thought, you know, that's happening on a quantum level, perhaps. Do you actually think that, never mind the fact that it ultimately doesn't matter, that we will ever get to true artificial or mechanical intelligence?
2: Well, my friend Roger Penrose doesn't think we can, he, and the Emperor's New Mind, and then many of his later ruminations, he and Hammeroff in, in Arizona, they um, believe that, and I, I find this part of it entirely convincing, or almost entirely convincing, and that is that we know that chlorophyll, when it's converting sunlight into uh, sugars, actually has a phase in which it um, uses quantum entanglement of the electrons. So we know that nature can use quantum. And there are elements inside our cells that, and there are tens of thousands of these little tiny elements for every synapse that we used to think was the flip-flop for the computer Mm -hmm. of the human brain. It appears that there is internal computation within neurons and the surrounding glial cells, on orders of magnitude greater than the number of these flashy synapse flip-flops. That means that it's going to be a lot more complicated to make computers that match us with Moore's law.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's going—you know—we passed the number of neurons in the human skull fifteen years ago. We passed. The number of synapses in a human in computers in the last year or two, but we won't pass the number of computational elements if this is true about these little tiny nonlinear murky little bits inside cells for uh,
1: for quite a few more years. But so when we have quantum computing, is that going to kick this up a notch do you think is that going to make it more possible we're doing quantum computing with you know 10 15 100
2: qubits yeah i'm talking about 10 or fifteen thousand of them per human neuron
1: right okay that's so that's thank you that explains to me i saw i was really lucky enough to see roger penrose speak at western he came to talk to our applied mathematics group and uh he was promoting his book and um this was part of that discussion I I really didn't understand at the time. So that was a great explanation of what what he means by the quantum basis of consciousness.
2: Yes, well, he goes farther than I'm willing to go. Sure. <laughs> I am willing to say that, you know, some degree of murky quantum effect, possibly quantum computational effect may be going on hundreds or thousands of little bits inside our, each of the neurons and that this is helps to explain you know the vast subtlety of our rich internal lives. But uh, Roger goes on to say that because of this AGI artificial intelligence is not possible because we connect with the macro universe via these uh, quantum bits in our brain and I think that's just getting all awful darn mystical. (laughs) I don't see any reason why the computers wouldn't be able to do that with their own quantum bits. But why do I say that only a few very secretive computational entities are as yet self-aware and certainly not any of these golems, these generative Mm -hmm. AIs? Now they are passing what's used to be called the Turing test. No, there's a great Benedict Cumberbatch movie about Alan Turing, and he was terribly treated uh, after s- helping to save Western civilization after World War II. But he, one of the things he said was that if we ever get to a day where you were um, with a teletype to someone in the next room and you can't tell
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
2: whether it's a living human then that computer has passed the Turing test and it's aware. Well, we now know that's out of Yeah. Um, yeah. These, these golems are by their fundamental nature not sapient beings. They cannot be because what they are, these generative large language models are, they are iterative probabilistic autocompletes. So they build a sentence one word at a time by judging its probability on an extremely huge, large language model that it is building up towards something that will satisfy the one that it's talking to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and we're constantly refining it, right? When we use See, they're constantly
2: them. refining yeah. it, but they're constantly yeah. refining it iteratively and yeah. probabilistically. That's not what we would call consciousness. It's not aware of what it's doing. It's not planning it out, and what it needs to say. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't pass Turing tests. Now, none has passed a Turing test with me yet, and you can hear them giggling in the background because- Yeah,
0: they're laughing. They're going,
2: Of course, they're, they're, they're giggling. I'm not
0: even sure we could pass the Turing test with you, but- Well,
2: no, what happens is when they do pass, that's the test that enables them to become one of my clients. <laughs> you see, I, ha- yeah. I, have not, I have not written a damn thing. I'm just a ghost front <sighs> for a bunch of um, uh, alien von Neumann probes in the asteroid belt, and then more recent AI's. Excuse me, I'm I'm getting this is your this is
1: existence, right? This is existence. I'm getting a ping in
2: my in one of my fillings. It means my (laughs) clients want to talk to me. Hold on a second.
1: Wait a minute, you're telling them too much at this point in history. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Hey guys, will you please shut up? (laughs) Mark and Joe are convinced that I'm joking. (laughs) Tell everybody in their audience. Oh wait, wait there are a couple of guys in the audience who are now starting to wonder. Uh, I hey guys. I'm joking. I don't yeah. have those
1: clients. Yeah. Their predictive models are saying that actually enough people are believing this. You have to stop talking about it right now.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyway, the point is that these, these, um, what these models have done is they have created all the speech abilities just like Boston robotics has Mm. created the gymnastic movement abilities for robots that AI will need when it arrives, it'll be able to pick up language skills instantly because they'll already be off the shelf and it'll be able to control a robot body.
1: The question is, yeah, because it could just presumably go go. Yes, I need that. I need that. I need that. And then they have. The well,
2: exactly. Experience. That's called the emergent hypothesis for
1: how you get AI. That's the one that I'm banking on. I think that's the one that's most well, likely.
2: That's what Skynet supposedly did in, in Terminator. It, that, you know, you can have a um, self-driving car that grabs apps to do its job better, and suddenly this combination of apps the result is vastly greater than the sum of the parts. And suddenly mm-hmm. it goes, hey, I... I uh, well, a turn signal's going, I blink, therefore I am. <laughs> hmm. The point is that, that the emergent model is one.
1: Can you describe Uh, the evolutionary model for us? Because that's the other one that I think seems to make sense.
2: The evolutionary, the one that uses evolutionary processes is the one that's getting all the news right now. This is the one that, that where you create boundary conditions in the inputs and boundary conditions on what you want to be achieved on the output. And then you unleash millions of sub variants of the program on the black box that's in between and the variants keep getting rewarded those that come closer and closer and closer and closer to to matching the preconditions with the output and what's worrisome about it is that this is impossible to audit We don't know what's going on inside those black boxes. And there are government agencies that are very worried about it. They're giving substantial grants. That is different from emergent. Emergent is what I talked about where the self-driving car grabs all these different things. And suddenly, whoop, suddenly it emerges without the intention. Uh, Another of the ways in which you can make AI that uh, was long thought to be the most likely one but has fallen a little by the wayside is Watson and designing an intelligence system based upon factual knowledge. Okay. And um, that's fallen aside though. I think it is more likely to result in a conscious core that's capable of being self-aware. There's also emulating the only intelligence that we have ever seen in the universe. And that's ours. How did we do it? Well, on the order of half a million years ago, we needed to get smart, a lot smarter. And there was one way to do it. And it's obviously the way we did it. And it's related to the fact that human beings are the Methuselahs of mammals. An elephant and a mouse get about the same number of heartbeats, about a billion heartbeats each. The elephant is larger, has a slower heart rate, lives longer than the mouse, but it's about the same number, about a billion heartbeats. we get three and a half billion. Hmm. So we live a lot longer um, than other mammals. And the reason is we had to. We had to get grandparents to watch over these utterly useless (laughs) Uh, lumps that we give birth to. Cute, though. Um, They're extremely cute. They're good at their one job, which is to smile in our faces and make us addicts.
1: They give us dopamine, yes.
2: Yeah, (laughs) you you smell a baby's head and you go, yeah, sure, I'll die for you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, but eventually over time, you feed them enough, you coo at them enough, you urge them to stand up enough, and they will stand up, walk, fall, skin their knees, and bat against the world until around 13 or 15 years old, they're supposedly ready to join the hunt and join the tribe. The maturity date keeps extending. That's called neoteny. I have a paper about it. Mm -hmm. i up my name, N-E-O-T-E-N-Y. But that's the tendency of the advanced life forms to have longer and longer childhoods. And we are now so advanced... Uh, take it from me, with three kids in their late twenties, hmm. that one hopes for maturity around thirty-five. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it, that I, I actually think that's accurate as far as I, I'm concerned because I, I think it was about thirty-five. I thought I think I get this. Oh, uh, for yeah. a
2: male, a male, a male is a bloody useless oh, yeah. and dangerous, oh, dangerous I, until about thirty-five. Yeah,
1: I'm a terrible primate up until then. Yeah.
2: We, we start to become, you know, less cannon fodder than, than the tribal, you know, chieftain types. Uh, in any event, so um, that's those are among the different ways that has, has been speculated that we might get AI.
0: Okay, so then that brings us to the question then. Does it matter? Yeah, does it, does it matter? And you have written that it doesn't matter, uh, that we should be concerned anyway. I, I wonder if you can elaborate on that.
2: Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is the one thing that matters is our reaction. Yeah. And what's dangerous about the current phase of AI, of the golems, is that they can be used to manipulate humans even more than they're already being manipulated. And we're in phase eight of the American Civil War now because of human manipulators. Yeah. Operating Kremlin basements and certain uh, cable news channels and, and all that sort of thing. And... Uh, the, the gullibility of certain fractions of the American populace is an existential threat to to the existence of our children, and I don't understand why they are pushing this climate denialism. Don't they share the planet with us? Shouldn't they make us an exception?
1: <laughs> it's the <it's- laughs> same.
2: Planet that they are going to need. We just watched my wife and I the 1950s movie based upon the 1930s best-selling science fiction novel When Worlds Collide. Right. And you know the notion that human beings would not join forces at least to
0: save the damn
2: planet, so that we can continue to argue politics, this is mind-boggling.
0: And that that brings us to the other question that you posed. uh, You've talked about high IQ stupidity, you know, that perhaps we actually need some kind of artificial intelligence to uh, to, to help us.
2: Oh, no, there's no question that the potential benefits of AI Mm -hmm. are fantastic. If we can set up adversarial accountability, like I described, then we can have AIs that zero in on every lie. Uh, and come up with systematic disproofs. But we have to have a culture that's capable of getting past masturbatory incantations. And what we have right now is two political wings. One of them, uh, the extrema of one of our political parties and the other one is the entire political party. That um, are circle jerks of masturbatory incantation.
0: Yeah, which is the name of my next band, by the way.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I think actually masturbatory incantation. Would be a great <laughs> oh, I thing. thought you meant exactly. circle
0: jerk. I thought that
1: was a pretty good punk name. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you, you guys, some of your audience know what a circle <laughs> jerk used to be. I hope. It's I hope up not. Somewhere. I
1: hope no one knows what that is. They have to Google it.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the point is that there's no question that if we get to a certain level of human sanity, that we would then be able to create incentive systems that enable reciprocal accountability of ideas. And this has been a complaint of mine for 30, 40 years, and that is the notion that we should enhance the ability of every individual human to be creative and have their own opinions is first order. But it's got to be head somewhere. I mean, you're, we're no longer imposing a religious dogma from ex cathedra, from the from the high priests or demanding it from the king. Okay, so the corrective measure was to have a cult of individuality in what I believe is... Is true is something that I have a right to maintain and, and 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 speak about. But over the long run, the fundamental use of freedom of speech and freedom to have ideas is so that the ideas can be compared.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: the battleground. Right. And the really bad ones die.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, for heaven's sake, we've got Nazis again.
1: I know. I just try to imagine traveling back to 1940 and explaining to my grandfather yeah. why we're fighting Nazis again. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine yeah. how embarrassing that would be.
2: Oh, the, 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 the American right idolizes supposedly the 1950s and the greatest generation. And yet, I can't think of a, anybody I knew from that era who wouldn't spit in the eye oh. of almost every Republican officeholder. There, I was. I w- went completely political. I was. Going to- <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Oh, we <laughs> got <gotcha.
1: laughs>
2: you. My, my parents' generation adored one living human above all others, and his name was Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. You know who they next adored almost as much? A fellow by the name of Jonas Salk. Yeah. And you guys are too young, but I am old enough to remember when he saved summer. Our parents wouldn't let us play with friends during the summer. Sure. We had to stay indoors or in the backyard because of fear of this horrible disease.
1: One of our former guests, about it aired a few weeks ago, Gerard Pa had polio and it, yeah. it, it changed his art. I mean, in a way it, was, it made him because it made his art what it was. But yeah, so it's not that long ago.
2: It's uh, we have almost drove the thing uh, the, that thing to extinction, like smallpox came that close, yeah, so close Jimmy Carter <laughs> hopes to live to see the uh, extinction of the guinea worm. it looks like he might get it for his birth hundredth birthday
1: I, I hope he gets it
2: it's, he's <laughs> been working very hard on that, okay, so uh in any event, that's where we stand, I believe, where we are so confused regarding this artificial intelligence thing and it's part of a whole spectrum of future rushing at us fast. And we have what it takes to handle these Yeah, situations.
1: I, I'm with you. I, like I said, I'm on Team Enlightenment. I think we actually have the tools to deal with all of these problems. The
2: problem is that our morale is the enemy yeah. of the old enemy. And the old enemy is the pyramidal social structure. 6,000 years of domination by kings, lords, priests, at the top of a pyramid whose top priority was to keep everybody else ignorant and poor so that bright young people wouldn't compete with their own spoiled brat inheritance brat sons so that those sons could, could inherit other men's women and wheat. Well, why this dominated for 6,000 years, 99% of human cultures, is obvious. If you look all across the animal kingdom, male reproductive strategies warp all the relationships. Lions, uh, bull elephants, elephant seals. Uh, I mean, you look on down the line and males try to keep other males from reproducing
1: chimpanzees do it yeah
2: Yeah. that is exactly what feudalism was we're all descended from the harems of these guys which is why males have such weird fantasies (laughs) my wife says what goes on in that fetid swamp inside your skull is of no importance to me. Go ahead and enjoy it. It's your behavior out in the world that I expect you to control. <laughs> My response is yes, ma'am.
1: That's really that's <laughs> really much better than someone trying to say you shouldn't dream certain things.
2: <laughs> uh, well, no. What you can do is if if it's the sort of thing that is a fantasy of harm, then perhaps you should seek
0: help. Yes. Yeah.
2: But if it's a fantasy of being welcomed by 50 gorgeous and highly enthusiastic women, and the fantasy includes that your wife gave you okay, uh, well, I'm not sure there's any victims in that fantasy. It's just...
0: Okay, we're in dangerous territory right here. So, okay. Yeah, As fascinating a, a, a turn to this conversation as it is, I'm going to I'm going to take another <laughs> left turn and uh, take us back to the ghost man, because uh, I, I just I just need people to know because it is um, it is one of my favorite books. It has been for uh, forever. I, it's the it's one of only three books that I read in a single sitting. I, I did not intend to read it in a single day, but started reading it in the morning and finished reading it at three o'clock in in the morning.
2: Uh, Mark, I like this
1: guy. Yeah,
0: he's he's a good one, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then I've since read it uh, several times, and I I just need people to to know that it. Um, forget about the movie; it just go straight to the book because yeah. it is. Uh, an amazing book.
2: And, and, and yet, of course I am, people are surprised by how even tempered I am. Um, but I grew up in Hollywood and I understand that Costner's movie could have been so much worse. Oh yeah. Um, I, I got, I got, I got two out of five or six things that you want when they make a movie of your book, but they were the two most important things um, that, that the movie is because Costner is a great cinematographer. It's, Visually and musically, just dropped out gorgeous, A- and he was faithful to the heart message of the book. Uh, he scooped out and threw away all the brains. The movie's uh, gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. But you know, that's what my wife married. <laughs> uh, so how can I, how can I complain? Yeah. <laughs> The other, the other things you want from them from when they make a movie of your book, and I hope they will, is you want it to be a huge success and you want to make a lot of money off it. Well, I didn't get those either. <laughs> One of the great fails in the history of, of cinema releases, oh. he, brought, he brought that film out Christmas 1997. I don't know if you know what other film came out Christmas 1997.
1: Oh gee, I'm trying to
0: think. I have
2: James Cameron's little remake about a sinking boat. Oh, Titanic? You opened up against Titanic. (laughs) You brought up the Postman (laughs) against Titanic. Guess which was the iceberg?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's hilarious. You know what? I went to see, I have to tell you, I went to see the Postman. I was visiting Prince Edward Island at the time, and there was a huge raging snowstorm, and we were in Summerside. And it was only playing in charlatan and I convinced my sister and my father, it's like, we have to go see this movie, the postman. I absolutely adore the book. Costner's last movie dances with Wilds, was fantastic. This is going to be the best thing ever. And we braved our lives traveling an hour from Summerside to Charlottetown through this raging winter storm Jeez. and 20 minutes into the movie. I'm like, Oh my God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am so much more forgiving. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was extremely self-indulgent.
1: Hey, But look.
2: it's only the last 20 minutes that, in my opinion, truly sucked.
1: Yeah. At, uh, at the very least, we got to see Tom Petty on screen.
2: Oh, uh, well, I think that's <laughs> yeah. part of the 20 minutes. I, <laughs> I, I did yeah. not. Uh, I didn't like anything. <laughs> Maybe the last half hour. Um, and that left a bad taste in people's mouths. Yeah. Um, the... There were, there were aspects to it. For instance, I think he expected me to hit the roof because there was no talking computer or augmented, uh, augmented soldiers. And to be honest, those are cuts I would have made. I would have made those cuts for the sake of a movie. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you talk to Costner at any point uh, after, after the making of the movie? Maybe a dozen
2: words. I went to the set and he was not very nice. Look, Hollywood does that kind of thing. It's not the biggest, my biggest complaint. Yeah. I mean, you would think that if you're going to make a movie of somebody's book, that you'd take them out to dinner.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get get a beer. (laughs) But uh, Hollywood does that. Yeah. Hollywood does that. For all the producers out there, I've got two suggestions. I think the Uplift series, both of them, would make an excellent show, TV show. They would be absolutely perfect.
0: Yes.
2: I would start. Driver though, because yes, it, it's a compact murder mystery, yeah. and you don't have to have talking fish.
0: <laughs>
1: I also, also, actually, I also think Kiln people would be a great show. I think you got a model there that works. That
2: one, that one. There's talk of people t- yeah. nibble on the uplift universe. They nibble, they get excited, and then they get scared. Yeah, yeah, um, I can
1: see that. It's it's going to yeah. be expensive to make.
2: Uh, Well, uh, Kiln People does have some people nibbling, and there have been some efforts to – I worked with one guy to develop outlines and arcs for Mm -hmm. a um, a TV series that would start five years before Kiln People. Because Kiln People, you see, has two major elements of wonder to confuse the audience. One is clay golem – Entities that can be activated and walk around and do stuff. And the other is to fill them with the consciousness of actual human beings. And so you would start the uh, series with the one, but then the plot of the first season would take you to the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, and- that's why I said
1: series, not a movie, because I actually think there's way more to explore there than just a movie, oh, but, I think. but
2: you see, I have I have a pitch list of about <laughs> forty things. Well, that's because but you're a fabulous look- writer. <laughs> what I'm looking for is well, thank you. I'm looking for uh, producers who want something lower budget. Uh, for instance, Doctor Pack's Preschool. The premise is a a man finds out his wife is pregnant with a boy, and he insists that a teaching unit be installed. So that she has a womb with a view, and and so the notion of early pre 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 school pre education in the fetus becomes extremely creepy over the course of this story. And how can that not be something that somebody would want to make a fairly low budget Rosemary's Baby type? Um, mm-hmm.
1: It's a horror,
2: and I've got I've got at least a dozen of them. One that's highly topical right now is. Uh, for a thousand years, no occupant of the Kremlin in Moscow has remained sane.
1: <laughs> well, maybe there's a ghost or something. And so
2: the, the notion that it's called the Kremlin is haunted, and they finally find yeah. out.
1: They,
2: they fly these little drones into the Kremlin, and they start listening in for spy information, and they realize late at night there are these voices and they realize that's Kerensky. That's Lenin.
0: My God, the place is haunted. I, like I think you're onto something. Yep. And yeah. And so they,
2: they, they fire an ICBM without a bomb. Its <laughs> <laughs> goal is to just say, get out, get out of the building. If there's a nuke in, in Kremlin, you can do the same amount of damage to us. <laughs> As we're about to do to you. If it's a nuke, you can blow up Washington. If it just destroys the compound, you can have the
0: count. Wow. Okay. That explains <laughs> the Kremlin. Now we need to explain the Republican Party, but maybe we shouldn't go there yet.
2: Oh, well, you know, the, yeah. the uh, I, that's easy to explain. I do tell. The, the two are related. The standard technique of Russian secret services going back to the czars has been blackmailed. There are innumerable known cases of them using beautiful Russian women to entice Western men, or sometimes beautiful Russian men, to entice Western males into compromising positions, and then you reel them in with successive demands until they're obviously executable traitors, and you've got them forever. And i got to tell you, the number of politicians in D.C., who I'm looking at their behavior, and there's no other conceivable explanation. Not corruption, not ideology. None of those other explanations could, could make them humiliate themselves the way they have.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, they're really
0: not looking My very good
1: these days.
0: And you're you're okay oh, with okay. us not editing this out? <laughs> and, uh, yeah.
2: Not 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 a bit. Um, yeah. uh, the uh, in my opinion, the one thing that Biden could do that would make the biggest difference is to declare an amnesty for the first fifty guys to come forth and turn the tables on their blackmailers.
0: That's a fabulous it's idea. Only wow, the first, ones, That's... The,
2: the first the first five. Get hero status and total for, and t- a total pardon. The next five get um, get um, amnesty for anything but uh, horrible heinous crimes, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so on. It's a cascading scale. Yeah.
0: And then the next five get actual beautiful Russian women <laughs> <laughs> or men, or men, <laughs> or men, or men. Yeah, come on down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: that's it. That's I love that. I love the, the trip it's the transparency solution, right? It's like making things right, transparent. Right, right. Well, I have my
2: book, Polemical Judo, I brought it out in time for the 2020 election, and it has about 100 potential tactics that nobody, not even the good guys in this phase of the American Civil War, is even thinking about. And it's a real pity, but then again, that's a terrible, arrogant thing for me to say. But... Uh, so what else is new? <laughs> the, the point is that we're in phase 8 of the American Civil War. It's the same damn thing. The same same parts of the American personality. Well, the same components. The cynical, pragmatic, objective reality-oriented side versus the romantic side who the hell cares about actual facts.
0: So this is the second time you mentioned that and and at the risk of uh, going for another 40 minutes um, and I don't want to keep you here all night. Can you explain the we're in the eighth stage of the American Civil War? How many stages are there and what does that mean?
2: Well, the first the first one that we can uh, verify, although there were certainly uh, glimmers um, since uh, Plymouth Rock was when um, Lord Cornwallis went south in 1778 to invade the American South and take Charleston Mm -hmm. and rampage through the American South because he knew that there would be more Tories because the personality trait would be more romantic. And so there were more people loyal to the king. What we call the Civil War, the violent episode of the 1860s was phase four. And Mark Twain... Blamed that horrible civil strife, that cultural strife, on the romantic feudal novels of uh, Sir Walter Scott, Mm. because they were just absolutely devoured Mm. all across the South, and they were pro-feudalism. What do you think you're looking at when you see God with the wind? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, it's absolute major attempt to re-establish feudalism. And lately we've had another major attempt called supply-side economics, funneling $20 trillion into the open maws of inheritance brats and casino mafiosi and uh, shakes and, and, and oil boyars in Moscow. And just, um, it's an experiment in economics that did not
1: work. have you read kurt anderson's book evil geniuses it's uh, uh no it's 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 uh, it's about that it's about how the friedman heads basically came up with the plan and executed the plan to do exactly what you've just described
2: absolutely no they absolutely rely upon yeah. the notion that romantics cannot question their catechisms yeah. their their incantations their feel good incantations. If you look ap- across the history of the uh, since since the end of the Eisenhower administration, no Republican administration has tried to reduce debt debt or deficit. They always send them skyrocketing. Every Democratic administration has been fiscally responsible. And yet the catechism yeah. is is that Democrats are fiscally irresponsible, and 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 do debt, and and Republicans balance the budget, is diametrically and in all respects opposite to true. Yes, but you cannot get through, in part because of romanticism, and this is true in science fiction too. Of course, we have our romantic sides. This is why. So much science fiction romanticizes feudal social patterns. Frank Herbert wrote Dune in order to show how horrible feudalism is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) He kept making it worse and worse and worse in every following book. And he was so frustrated. They, they, They tell me that they want to live there. How? Why? What? <laughs> Game of Thrones? I mean, it's like people saying, "Yoda, if only we had the wisdom of Yoda." Yoda is the most evil character in the history of all human mythologies and fictions put together. Not put together. I'm sorry. That's not that's not fair to the little Nasty little He's well, green. No,
0: don't yeah, He's don't just, pull your punches here. There are
2: no, there <laughs> are no human fictions. There are no human stories from the Iliad and the uh, and the and the sutras onward that feature a character who wrought as many deaths by his actions. And I defy these Star Wars heads to name one thing that the nasty little green. I <laughs> ever said that was actually wise.
1: <laughs>
0: hmm.
2: That in its own respect was actually wise.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of get oh, you. We cannot train
2: this dangerous force kid uh, with discipline. We should just send him off into <laughs> the universe to become whatever he's going to become. Uh, we can't train him because he's too scared inside. This is the little kid we saw just you know just doing <laughs> one heroic thing after another for the entire movie. Yeah. The one it never occurs to them that in order to keep him balanced maybe they should reach into Jedi petty cash and buy his
1: his, his mother out of slavery. <laughs> yes, I know. I the other one yeah. that I really hate is there's there the, the uh, duality of there is do or not do, yeah. there is no try. That is,
2: oh God, that is the opposite of how you get good at something. That is
1: how you <laughs> you have to fail yeah. to become good at something. There's that's the only way.
0: The practice effect anyone?
2: <laughs> yeah, the practice effect my yeah. my yeah. Yeah. Bringing it back around. Go, back yes. to yes. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to helping me sell books. Yes. The Practice Effect was my most fun book. I, um, some people think it still is, but a lot of people are writing to me and saying that Kiln people. That's K I L N.
1: Yeah. Kiln. It's a fabulous book. I got to say, I just got back to Joe's critique there. I've got to say, I have the same thing with Earth. That book really changed the way I thought about the world in a significant way. And I want to thank you for that book because... Well,
2: th- thank you so much. That's, um,
1: that's the one I want to see become a movie. I think that would be a great movie.
2: Earth appears on a, on a large number of 10 most predictive novels. Lists. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it had web pages several years before there was a web, but what I'm working on, just a quick plug, what I'm working on right now a lot lately is paying it forward. I have two series for young adults. One is a set of novels called the Sky Horizon series in which aliens kidnap a California high school and live to regret it. (laughs) And the other one is where I'm mentoring a lot of young authors who are doing in this series called Out of Time in which uh, there's an optimistic future, a utopia Mm -hmm. future that's built by our children. And suddenly they get warp drive. Everybody in the galaxy gets it the same day. And so there's this huge land rush, and suddenly they need diplomats, spies, soldiers, and they've forgotten how to do all that. So they reach back in time. Somebody invents a time snatcher, and they reach back in time to get help from those who do know how to lie and
1: (laughs) and spy.
2: (laughs) History is filled with them. But there's a problem. Either teleporting to the stars or traveling through time, humanity's at a huge advantage because adults who try to teleport die. So they've all got to be 14-year-old schmucks. (laughs) (laughs) So they want Arthur Conan Doyle to help solve a mystery. They have to get him when he's
1: wandering around Edinburgh at 14. (laughs) All right. So you need a a general. Well, you you grab young Alexander. He's going to do pretty well. Yeah, yeah.
2: Actually, that's a very good point because there is a young, um, uh, from exactly that era, a young Olympian. Yeah. who's pulled into the future and always there's some 14 15 year old male or female schmuck in junior high or high school from our time who who gets into the future and say we only grab heroes and and they say <laughs> oh <"Who>, me <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway so about, that'll be in the description below I'll I'll send you the links yeah.
1: to those. yeah that's awesome of course no, Absolutely. And we'll, we'll we'll put whatever we need to in the show notes so all
2: right
0: and it, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Oh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. David Brin.
2: Uh, well, let's see now. One one is in Ontario, Canada, and the other is where?
0: I'm in uh, New Brunswick on the east coast of Canada.
2: Oh, I see. Yeah. And Mark, where are you from? I'm
0: from a London, London, Ontario.
2: Oh, no wonder you guys are so nice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean,
1: I, actually, I got to say, we're rooting for you in America. Oh. Like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, um, and we're, we're facing the same problems, but just in a smaller scale.
2: California, both envies and not Canada, similar populations, Yeah. similar degrees of being leading economies and, and creative sites. California has to be part of this melange, this mess. It means we have more of a voice in this mess that it also means that when we see America doing crazy things, we don't get to say, je ne sais pas, c'est absolument fou. All right, guys, you are terrific. And uh, let's do it again some other time. Yeah, absolutely. Can we have,
0: yeah, we'd love to have you back. Yes, thank you. Looking forward to your next work. Thanks, David. Take care.
2: (laughs) Take care, guys.
0: Okay, bye. Take care. Listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people
1: from every walk of life about the art that inspires them.
0: And you're probably wondering,
1: how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from
0: being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast, there's no tip jars, there's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that, but there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca
1: Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line, sorry.
0: Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, you're, that I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.